couple questions as we start this morning. What do you spend your time thinking about when you're all alone? What do you meditate upon? Another way to ask this question is what captivates your heart and attention? In Colossae, the false teachers were were trying to take the Colossians captive by offering empty philosophy which is built upon man's traditions and the elementary principles of the world. Traditions of men can be packaged in such a godly way, but have no value. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, the writer of Hebrews warns, do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings. So certainly Paul is not the only one who warned against this. Paul, here in Colossians, combats those who would like to take them captive with Christ's deity, with our completeness, and by the way, with his authority over all so-called rival authorities. The true teaching is all that Paul has been talking about as he's been laying out for us beautifully in chapter 1 in what was very likely an early Christian hymn. Paul had made the case in the previous verses for all wisdom being available through Christ. In him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Hidden in the fact that they are available for us to dig those treasures out. And so that wisdom is available through Christ, and that then should equip us to defend against any other teaching, false teaching. Earlier he had said, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. And so he's all about equipping them against that which is false. So we begin today with the first of three prominent warnings in this part of the letter to the Colossians. The warning today, don't be taken captive by empty, deceptive philosophy. We'll see in several weeks from verse 16, don't let anyone condemn you or judge you. In verse 18, do not let anyone disqualify you, defraud you of your prize. So we know, because Paul had never been with the Colossians, that Epaphras, who likely had founded this church, he had obviously, at Rome, filled Paul in to the threat that they were facing. And Paul wasn't afraid to warn. And by the way, any good handler of the word of God should be not just willing, but also desiring to warn, even if it gets him labeled as a meddler or a troublemaker. Warnings are part of scripture for a reason. We need them. Our verses today starts with one such warning. But Paul then provides a rich rebuttal of truth about Christ to explain why we should be captivated by him. Colossians, the false teachers, they want to capture your allegiance. 
your affections, but you instead should take every thought captive and be captivated by Christ. The title of today's message is Captivated by Christ. Captivated by Christ. Three verses this morning from Colossians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 8 through 10 this morning in Colossians chapter 2. Follow along with me as I read these verses this morning. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, that's Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. As has already been prayed, Father, we ask that you would be our teacher now, that your spirit would take your word and apply it to each one of our hearts individually in ways that no man could possibly be able to do. You know what's on every heart in this room. And I pray that you would meet every spiritual need, whatever that is. Lord, I don't know everyone's spiritual need in this room. You do. And I pray that your word would meet them right where they are. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we enter this portion of Colossians, one of the important things for us to settle is what this phrase, elementary principles of the world, means. The Greek word translated elementary principles is is the word stoicheia. And there are three main views as to what this means. And this, hopefully, going through this, will help us to understand specifically, uh, help us better understand at least, what specifically the threat was that the Colossians faced. Because Paul never comes right out and says, here is the precise threat. We have to sort of read in between the lines some. But the problem is that this word, stoicheia, is considered very difficult to interpret. To try to discern what Paul meant by this phrase, we're going to consider a couple different factors. Number one, how this word in Greek was used in Paul's day. Number two, how it was interpreted by those who came after but lived very close to Paul's day. And then thirdly, the internal evidence. In other words, how Paul used this word, this Greek word, in Scripture. When considering how this word was used in Paul's day, the challenge comes with the strong possibility that Paul was being very original in the way that he was using this word as it pertained to what we would call religious language or vocabulary. In other words, nobody else used it in this way. So the other writers use this phrase to refer to other things like the spirits of the day or the astrological elements. That can't be the final determining factor as to how Paul was using this phrase. That said, many of the church fathers who who lived closer to this time believed that this stoicheia, the elemental uh, things of the world, principles of the world, referred to the heavenly bodies which marked seasons and the observance of new moons and Sabbaths, under which, by the way, people at that time were held in bondage. They were in bondage, enslaved to those things. That was part of the Greek world of that day. One of the commentators, Douglas Moo, makes a good point that because this word in Greek is used so rarely in the New Testament, 
just in a couple places, once in Galatians, which we had read for us, and then Colossians, the only two places that this idea is mentioned, it's most likely that it means the same thing in both places. And I would agree with that. So that's why Galatians 4 was read, because as we try to understand this element, we have to compare what is said in Galatians chapter 4 as well about these elementary principles. So I mentioned there are three views of what this word stoicheia means. Number one, some say that, that stoicheia are the elements of the material world or the universe. This, by far, was the most usual way that this word was used in Paul's day. This view says that it was all the elements from which matter was composed, um, including the earth, water, air, and fire. But the problem with this view is trying to fit it into the context in which Paul is writing to Colossians. It's very uh, somewhat problematic to try to figure out how that would fit into what Paul is talking about. That said, more to come on that view. The second view is that stoicheia, the elementary principles, is actually should be the elementary spirits. And some translations, if you had an ESV right now in your lap, it would actually translate this elementary spirits, not elementary principles of the world. This view has gained much popularity in our day. And so as we think about Galatians and Colossians, the subject matter does lend itself to this interpretation because both epistles refer often to spirit beings. The ESV Study Bible says Paul is referring to demonic forces here. And so many conclude that the elemental spirits can, were controlled by the planetary spheres and the world around us, and that this is what controlled men's lives. It's not too unlike people who believe that astrology is what drives people's lives today. And it is certainly true that evil spirits working uh, as part of Satan's kingdom are behind both false teaching and, by the way, false practice. They cheer when people follow the traditions of men and empty philosophy and not Christ alone. That is surely true. Later in this chapter, we'll see that Paul mentions angel worship. And that seems to support the potential for this view. We'll talk about more in depth what that angel worship might have looked like. And another pro to this view that he's talking about elementary spirits um, is that, that that's how the word was used in Persian writings, in magical papyri that they found in the day, astrological documents, and yes, even some Jewish texts. This word was used in that way. And so if this is what he's meaning, Paul's accusing the false teachers of setting up rivals to Christ and considering him just another emanation. We know that that was part of their view of the false teachers. We've talked about that quite a bit. Well, another pro to this view is where Paul goes next, because he is now at the end of our passage today. He is going to refer to the rules and authorities, speaking of spiritual rulers and authorities, over which, by the way, Christ is the head. He's over them. But if this view is correct, if that's what Paul has in mind, the elemental spirits, then Paul's question is, why would we, 
having been delivered and brought under the lordship of Christ, put ourselves back under spiritual beings who are also under him. Why would we do that? He created them. Why elevate the creature above the creator? One problem with this view that I think is difficult to overcome is that there's no evidence that stoicheia was used in this way until centuries later. So while they've been able to find texts where the word is used in this way, it wasn't used in Paul's day in this way. That's difficult to overcome. The third view, and this is the way our New American Standard translates it, is elementary or basic principles. Stoicheia originally meant placing things side by side, such as the letters of the alphabet or how the planets would be uh, stacked side by side. Uh, things which belong in a series, such as syllables that make up words or, or notes that make up a musical piece, for example. And so then this word became known to be uh, attributed to the first lessons of an education of any subject. And we use, actually use this some, some in this day. We say the ABCs of history, or uh, some people will say the ABCs of science or math, meaning just that first principles. If this is the idea that Paul is getting at, it would be something like this. He's speaking of the fundamental principles or the basics of a religious system. And so if this is Paul's meaning, he's telling the Colossians, don't return to the rudimentary, immature speculations that you've come from. You see, the false teachers were offering them to move from what they would have called childlike baby things that they had been taught to the deeper things of God. That's what they were propagating. That's what they were offering. And by the way, that appeals to our sin nature, which is discontent and how we are always striving for more, something different, something new. One commentator, Martin Vincent, wrote this, ceremonialism, whether meats, drinks, washings, the Essenes, asceticism, again, which we'll talk about um, when we get there later in this chapter, pagan symbolic mysteries and initiatory rites all belong to a rudimentary moral stage. And this view would fit whether it was the ritualism of Judaism, as in Galatians, or the rituals of pagan religions. So what about comparing scripture with scripture? Turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Hebrews 5, 12 uses a similar word and seems to support elemental principles. Hebrews 5.12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Do you see how that fits in with what we were talking about, how it's sort of the rudimentary um, things that, that are part of a religious system? Let's turn back again and compare Galatians 4 what we had read for us along this same line. 
Galatians 4, beginning in verse 3. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under, and here's our phrase, under the elemental things of the world. Drop down to verse 9 and 10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Then he goes into some details, some examples. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Scriptural support seems to support this view. One of the commentators, Nicholson, says of the ele- this, says this: the elementary lessons of the world, such as are taught by the Levitical ritual, a ritual that is, which is regarded as necessary to salvation. Again, they had false teachers saying you needed this to be saved. Yeah, you're starting well, but you need this, 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 and this as well. He goes on to say, for such was the idea of the false teachers, and such the relation to the Mosaic ritual. Rituals in themselves are not wrong. God put these things in place. But he did so to point to something. And for us to continue to make the rituals or the symbols the thing is to go back to the elementary principles and to lose sight of Christ to whom those things pointed. So how do we come to some sort of conclusion? And, and I know we've taken some time with this, but it's gonna, this is foundational for us as we consider the next few messages. Because that phrase is important for us to try to discern what it means. Well, these views all have pros and cons. But we should understand how closely the people in Paul's day would have tied the spiritual beings with the material elements of the world. Uh, Again, whether that's earth, water, air, and fire, or even the celestial beings, they all were deified in that day. They saw them as gods. Well, much of the religious practice was dictated by the calendar. And the calendar was thought to be controlled by the planets, just as the moon tells us how long our year is, for example. And since the calendar is often dictated by these astrological gods from Greek and Roman mythology, and by the way, the religious practice even of the Jewish calendar is dependent upon that, it may be that the rudimentary principles ties more closely to these two than one might have thought. So all that to say these rudimentary or elemental principles um, may have more to do with where Paul goes next. Because where does he go next in verse 11? He goes to baptism and he goes to circumcision in verses 11 and 12. And we'll, we'll talk more about that next week. But how does that fit in then to the elementary principles of a religious system? Making something good a ritual and not what is intended to be is something that we uh, so sometimes fall into. The Colossian false teachers' preoccupation with religious rites 
and ceremonies about material things was utterly pagan. That was part of the religious practice that was being offered to these Colossian believers. And I think that these three can be tied together more than when I I started this study. So where do I land? I lean towards the idea, just as it's translated in the New American Standard, that the elementary principles are, are just that, the elementary principles of a religious system rather than the elements of the material world or elementary spirits. But all three views are actually possible, so I can't be dogmatic about it. But let's just sort of wrestle through this even as we go through these passages. So with that backdrop, hopefully I didn't lose you in that. I I suspect that it's possible that I have. But we're going to continue to work through this. Point number one in our messages today is taken captive by what is not of Christ. And it's verse 8. Taken captive by what is not of Christ. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. See to it is a command. It's something that we're given to put forth the effort. It's our responsibility to watch out. Paul's putting on the, the Colossians on alert, and he's putting us on alert as well. He's been hinting about a threat for, um, for the first chapter plus here. Now he's going to be much more direct about that threat. And that's because we are now entering into what's called the polemic portion of the letter. A polemic just is defined as a strong written or verbal attack on something or someone. He is writing against this false system. And the grammar here of this, of this sentence in Greek may indicate that Paul has a certain person in mind who represents what we would think of as sort of the ringleader of this false movement. He doesn't name names here. He does in other places. He's not afraid to do that. He doesn't name names here, but the Colossians would know exactly who he means. He's talking about. Don't let this one deceive you, take you captive. Beware that no one takes you captive. This word take captive, take captive in Greek, it's the only time that this word appears in our New Testament. This word means to lead away as the spoils of war. And it's not the idea that somebody comes and steals all of your stuff and takes it away. No, the idea is more that you are the one who then is taken and made the booty of war. It's a word that would be used of pirates who would come and accost ships and take away victims with them. Another idea here is to seduce them. And the structure alerts the Colossians to a threat that isn't far out here. It is present and it is dire. It's urgent. Don't let them kidnap you with their false system. You've been freed from slavery. Don't go back into imprisonment to their lies. Don't let them make you their prize of war. 
So what about the content of this false system? Well, he starts with this word philosophy. Also, the only time that this Greek word is used in the New Testament, this word translated philosophy. Now, Paul here is not speaking against all philosophy. The word initially had a a good connotation. In fact, you've probably heard of the Pythagorean theorem in, in mathematics. Pythagoras actually called himself a lover of wisdom. That's where this phrase came from. That then got transliterated into our English word, philosophy, which just simply means love wisdom. It's not wrong to love the right kind of wisdom, is it? We're told to do that. Philosophy was a term that was used much more broadly at this time than it is today. In fact, one of the historical writers, Josephus, called both the Sadducees and Pharisees, they were philosophies in that day. So rather than condemning all philosophy, Paul is speaking against a certain, a certain philosophy, one that can be characterized by empty deception. In the Greek, there's actually an article, and the reason for that is because it seems likely that the false teachers were calling this the philosophy. Like that was their system, the philosophy. You must pay attention to the philosophy These were fine-sounding arguments. Sometimes they sound so good. Perhaps the ringleader of this, uh, these false teachers, would say something like this. Colossians, we know that you've started well. But now come learn of our philosophy. Come learn from our philosophy class, maybe. And so Paul uses their own word against them, and he takes the fight to them right in their arena. Their philosophy is full of empty deception. Now, instead of two different things here, the the structure in the original indicates that it is a a philosophy which is characterized by empty deception. The empty deception is what qualifies the philosophy. It's a delusion. It's make-believe. They're living in a fantasy land. They are deluded and living in a dream world. Because a world where Christ is not the center of all of life does not exist. A life where you are God and you control your own destiny does not exist. These philosophers, they sound so smart with flowery language, but it's all deception, empty. And so Paul opposes any philosophy that seduces those under his care to move away from the simplicity of Christ. This philosophical system seemed to have covered both their their, um, system of thought, which showed up in mysticism, but also their practice. They often practiced asceticism, meaning they beat their bodies into subjection. Others in that day went the exact opposite and said, the body doesn't matter, we can just do whatever we want. Hedonism gone crazy. Well, their system of thought led to how they lived. But the Colossians have been liberated from the domain of darkness. Paul doesn't want to see them carried back to a kingdom of falsity, but to remain in truth. And so what about the source of these false systems. Well, he he gives us additional 
words here, according to the tradition of men. We could spend all day talking about what people stand in pulpits and say are part of the word of God, really, which are just traditions of men. We'll probably get into that some when we see this phrase again later in this book. But for now, it's the ordinances that this world offers. We talked a little bit about tradition last time. Well, the word received is the Greek word used specifically of tradition, that which is passed down from one generation to another. And there is a good sense of the word tradition. For example, turn to Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. Galatians 1, verse 14. Paul, shortly after he was saved, Galatians was one of the first epistles written. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. What do you think those ancestral traditions are that he was talking about? Well, Paul spent so much of his time studying the Old Testament Torah. That's what he's referring to. We get worried about words that are misused like traditions or or are um, misunderstood. But F.F. Bruce wrote this, Protestants sometimes overlook that tradition in the New Testament has this better sense as well as a worse one. It's good to recognize and hold fast to the true tradition while rejecting all tradition which runs counter to the gospel. It's not wrong to have family or church traditions, but they must not be elevated to the place of the word of God or above the place of the word of God. And any tradition that opposes God's word needs to be thrown out. It needs to go. By the way, a great way to foster disunity is to allow the traditions of men to compete with the word of God. Turn back to Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Romans 16, verse 17. Note the importance of Paul's um, statement here. I mean, his pastoral heart just kind of bleeds off the page here. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned. Turn away from them. Turn away from anything that is not Christ. And that doing that will protect the unity in the body. So many church splits that we hear about is over some tradition of man, some non-essential. Can't elevate the traditions of man to the word of God. And he goes on to say according to the elementary principles of the world. Uh, We've kind of beat this to death, right? Elementary principles, these are the, the fundamentals or rudimentary principles. If we take this as the basics of religion that Paul is describing, 
the so-called advanced things that they were offering, the false teachers, he's saying they're just mere ABCs. Don't, don't turn back to the, the elemental principles of their religion. And so after two according to's that he said, according to the tradition of men, according to um, the elemental principles, he then says not according to. You see, the fundamental problem with all competing tradition and philosophy is that they're not according to Christ. And so this is the most important question we should ask about anything that's being presented. Is it of Christ? Is it of Christ? F.F. Bruce writes about the human tradition that it, that it sounded good, it appealed to the natural religious instincts, but there was nothing in it for Christians. Anything that does not consider Christ is doomed to fail. Christ is truth. Anything that opposes him is false. And so when he's talking about these philosophies, it's not like today's college philosophy class which begins with the premise that God doesn't exist it's not wrong to ask questions that are philosophical in nature, questions about God, questions about the world the meaning of life, the important distinction to make is where are those questions leading, if they all lead to humanistic answers leaving God out of the equation they are empty and deceitful They don't align with reality as a world where God is not sovereign and is not acknowledged, does not exist. In my prayer, I mentioned that we make politics the answer. Is politics the answer? We must follow Christ. We must follow Christ. That is a humanistic answer, just as the philosophical Jargon of the day in college classes. Same source. Empty philosophy is what the Colossians are offered. Loving false wisdom is idol worship because it rejects the source of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Who is who? Christ. They, these false teachers, they claimed an advanced wisdom. A higher knowledge. But there's no more advanced wisdom and higher knowledge than the one who is wisdom. And so right philosophy leads to Christ. Good tradition leads to Christ. Griffith Thomas wrote, The test of movements, of institutions, of books, what it comes down to, are they of Christ? Are they after Christ, in his words? I think it's highly likely that some of our own preconceptions about how life works is not according to Christ. It's why we need to continue to have God change our minds, renew our minds. The way we think must bend to Christ. We must not shape him into what we think he should be, That is the same kind of idolatry just as much as the people in Jeremiah's day who shaped an image. When we shape God into our own image, that is idolatry. 
And so what worldly thought pattern might be influencing you to think differently than Christ? That is a good question to ask yourself. By the way, this requires an awful lot of time in the word of God. And also for you to be with a community of believers who know the word well, who know you, so that they can confront you in areas where you've gone astray. That's the admonishing one another that Paul tells us to do. Paul writes to these Colossians, you've been rescued from the domain of darkness. Be on guard not to be kidnapped to a worse state by empty deceivers, but rather continue on as children of light, walking in the light of Christ. So point number one, don't let yourself being taken captive. Now, point number two from verses nine and 10. Captivated by Christ and what he has done for us. Captivated by Christ and what he has done for us. We'll start with our position in verse 10. We'll come back to verse nine after that. Captivated by Christ and what he has done for us. Verse 10, in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. From time to time, you'll hear somebody say of another, they complete me. I understand the sentiment of that. It's usually somebody who's recently been married and they feel like they finally found their life partner. But there's only one to whom it can accurately be said, you complete me. And that is Christ. The word completed here means perfected, given fullness. But even stronger than that, it's, it's the idea of being filled full. You're not partially in him if you know him as Savior, as if you're, you're sort of dipping your toe into the water to test the temperature. You're not mostly in him. If you're born again, you're in him. And if you're not, you're not in him at all. This is true of the most faithful aged servant or the five-year-old who has just professed Christ or the one that you believe is born again, but just struggles so much against the sins and baggage of the past. No matter what, if they know Christ, their identity is that of being in him. You've been filled. And if so, you cannot be unfilled. The perfect tense of this, made complete, tells, the, tells that the completing happened at a point in time in the past, but the results are still being experienced. And by the way, notice that it is passive. You are made complete. You didn't complete yourself. God did this for you, if you know him as Savior. Turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. And the word, being Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Now note in particular verse 16, For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. It is something we've received from him if we know him as Savior. And when you receive Christ, you are filled instantly. It's not like filling a balloon, which is a process. This is a a one moment you're empty of Christ, the next minute you're filled full. And by the way, if that's true, you are not in danger of there being a hole in you, like you're a a balloon or an inner tube that got hit by a rock and air starts gushing out. Christ isn't going to leak out of you if you're full of him. And this is true both in, in the past, the present, and the future. Christ has given us fullness of redemption. And so these false teachers were offering more for their redemption? No, no, no. You already have full redemption. You already have everything that you need in the present for life and godliness. And by the way, if you're filled full now, you have an amazing future ahead of you. So don't get carried away by something else. Keep walking in Christ. Stay the course. Don't move away. Remember, don't move away. Stay where you are. If you know Christ, you already stand positionally righteous in Christ because he died for your your sins at the cross. You're part of a new kingdom, no longer in Satan's kingdom, but living in Christ's kingdom. As it said in in chapter 1, you've already been qualified for the inheritance along with the saints in light. So live in that completeness. On the other hand, if you're not filled in Christ, the converse is true. You're just as much a vacuum as that vain philosophy that we talked about earlier. So that's our position, complete in Christ. Now in verse 9... We'll go back one verse and we'll see Christ's position. And we'll finish with this. We talked about our position. Now let's look at Christ's position. Verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We talked about our position, now Christ's. The word for in verse 9 clues us in that Paul isn't changing subjects. He's elaborating on what he said before, that these things are not of Christ. Now he says, for all the fullness or completion of deity. Remember this word fullness was a term that was being used by the false teachers of the day to speak of a higher level of of spirituality. And so Paul's saying, rather than solving the problem of man being separated by God, and, and their offer, their view, said that you should seek favor of many different intermediaries between God and man, the Colossians are to recognize that Jesus is the one mediator between God and man. And by the way, he is enough. He is the perfect mediator between God and man. The perfect high priest that bridges the gap between God and man. And it is the fullness of deity 
Or if you have a, a new King James or a King James that has the word Godhead here, fullness of the Godhead. This is the only place where this word translated in the New American Standard as deity appears in the Greek New Testament. It speaks of this fullness. It speaks of the essence of God, who, and it dwells in Christ. Christ does not make part a part of the deity, as they were suggesting. Along with many other lesser gods, he is the very essence of God, and he is the fullness of deity. Nothing else needs to be added. Nothing else can possibly be added. He is God completely. I don't know if there's a stronger way in Scripture to say this, to testify the truth, that Jesus the Christ is God. His deity on full display here. To help us understand, one of the Greek New Testament scholars, Kenneth Wiest, said it this way, And you are in him, having been completely filled full, with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. We couldn't get more full than that. Rather than many different streams available, the only fountain of spiritual completeness is Christ alone. And it goes on, Paul goes on to say it, he dwells, it dwells in bodily form, in his humanity, in Jesus. The word dwells here is in present tense, means ongoing action. He houses down permanently or, or resides in bodily form physically. In the Greek th- system of the thought that day, the physical and the spiritual were separated And in their philosophy, they should remain so. So in their way of thinking, there was no way that God could conceive, no way that they could conceive of a God that created this world or had any direct contact with it. That's why they created the system with all of these emanations or go-betweens to bridge that separation between God and man. Because in their mind, matter was evil and spirit was good. But as we know, not all spirit is good. Satan and the demons. Matter in in and of itself isn't evil. Remember, God created matter and pronounced it good in Genesis. To them, God cannot take on a physical body. These two were incompatible realities. But Paul and the other New Testament writers stress the Incarnation. That Jesus was fully God and fully man. God in the flesh. He didn't appear to be man as some of the Gnostics would say. No, he's fully God and fully man. The hypostatic union. And by the way, that's not past. It continues to this day. Though Jesus today dwells in a glorified body. Still has a body. Not a temporary sojourn, but a permanent residence. Paul uses language that expertly combats those who challenge both the deity and humanity of Christ. By the way, that's true of any cult that you would go to today. Either they're challenging the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ. They trip up on this fully God, fully man. But Paul sets both of those two truths next to each other and says they are both true. And amazingly, God lets us share in this divine nature. 
turn to 2 Peter chapter 1 and don't miss this. Don't miss this. I want you to see this for yourself. Perhaps with new light and joy this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4. We'll start in verse 2 to pick up the context. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. But look at this phrase. You have become partakers of the divine nature. His fullness is, we might say, transfused into us because we are joined to him corporately. It doesn't mean that we become God or, or little gods, but we do share in his very nature. So far away from, from the abstract thought of empty philosophy, Christ is imminent and he is knowable. He's not some distant idea that we can't quite grasp, but a savior with whom we have a personal relationship. We know him, and more importantly, he knows us. As we think about his position, we'll finish with just the last verses, last words of verse 10. He is the head over all rule and authority. This word head clearly means that Jesus is over all others. He has authority over all would-be rivals. Headship also has to do with life source. They get their vitality from him. This word rule has to do with a principality or power. And the word authority means influence, jurisdiction, or, or liberty. God's authority structure is indicated with this word head. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, the gender identity crowd wants to redefine male and female, so they reject this vigorously. But professing Christians have their own way of striving against authority structure, by the way, that's no less sinful and rebellious. Paul has already said that by Jesus all things are created and all things are held together by his power. Remember, Jesus is supreme over creation. And by the way, that includes all of these spirit beings as well, whether good or evil. Two weeks from today, we'll look at Colossians 2.15 on Easter Sunday. And we'll see again that, that Jesus demonstrated his victory and authority over all of them. Because the language there is a processional after war, they would come back from war, and there would be a, a parade 
down the streets of victory, that parade has already happened. Jesus has already won the war. And every authority is already under him. Listen to Ephesians 3.10. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heaven. What this verse tells me is that creatures in heaven care about what's going on in the church. Sometimes, probably even more of us who sit in church, they care about what's going on. Christ is the head of the universe and the church. And in everything, he must come to have first place. Remember Colossians 1, 18. What encouragement for the Colossians, who may still have had some revisual fear of the demonic realm because of where they had come from, to be reminded and to understand that Jesus has authority over all else. Rather than becoming captives to false systems of thought, false religions, we must take every thought captive. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. Traditions of men, philosophy. Those are lofty things up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Folks, that means that we should train our minds to be a filter so that every thought we have, we should say, is this of Christ? Well, before we get into our life application, let's just briefly reflect on what Paul has already said to correct that which was false. Remember, they, they refuse that God is the creator. Paul affirms that God has created all things. They offered a, a higher wisdom. Paul said, you have Christ. You, you have the highest wisdom where, where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are available to you. They offered a false system of all these intermediary beings. Paul points them to Christ alone as the mediator. They suggest that all of these inter intermediary beings use, are ones that need to be worshipped. Paul says, worship the one under whom every one of them is under his power and authority. They want to add Christ Add to their religious experience. You started well, but you need this to, to advance to a higher level of spirituality. But by the way, adding to Christ really, in essence, is subtraction by addition. So life application point number one. Don't be taken captive by empty philosophies or traditions. The false teachers offered fullness, but it was not of Christ. They offer deeper experience. And this is the claim, by the way, of false teachers and cultists all throughout time. You need this deeper thing. Well, our tradition as believers must be of Christ. Our philosophy must have Christ at its end. Don't be taken by captive by deceit. But how do we do that? Well, again, life application point number two, take every thought captive.
to the obedience of Christ. Jesus is over all of these spiritual beings. He is their head. They are under his control. Satan is on a leash. Do you realize that Satan can't possibly keep something from happening that God has ordained to happen? We don't need to fear evil spirits. If we know Christ, we know that they are firmly under his authority and power, his headship. And so, folks, today, if your theology finds God to be maybe just a little bit stronger than Satan, you need to rethink that theology. Take your thoughts captive to what the Bible says about these things. So we take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and finally, be captivated by the fullness of Christ. Those who are enthralled by Christ are not looking for anything else. If you are full of Christ, how could you possibly want anything else? Be enthralled by him. Gaze much at the face of our beautiful Savior. And that will help you and I not to be taken captive if we are captivated by him. I love the words of hymn writer Isaac Watts. Oh, for a sight, a blissful sight of our almighty Father's throne. There sits the Savior, crowned with light, clothed in a body like our own. Adoring saints around him stand, and thrones and powers before him fall. The God shines gracious through the man and sheds sweet glories on them all. I trust that you are captivated by this amazing Savior today. We will spend all of our days in eternity worshiping this Savior. Why not do that today? Be captivated by Christ. Father, thank you for who you are. The depths of who you are will never plumb completely. We have available all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ, but we need to dig. We need to spend much time gazing at you, Jesus, beautiful Savior. I pray that you would captivate us anew and afresh. Perhaps we would be like those Laodiceans or the Ephesians who've lost their first love or the Laodiceans who are lukewarm, ignite in us afresh and anew a passion for Jesus Christ alone. Awaken us out of our slumber. Remove our spiritual apathy. Reignite in us a heart that is pursuing you, captivated by you, and taking every word captive. And I pray if there's one in this room who has been trusting in something false, that you would open their eyes today to that, and they would be captivated by you alone, freed from the imprisonment of false systems of belief, trusting you as Savior. pray this in your name. Amen.